So we are working our way through Sefer Yehoshua, and we are holding, we reached um, Latin last class till chapter 13, Perik Yud Gimel. Um, and actually from here on in it goes even quicker, as we'll see tonight. I don't think we're going to finish the Sefer tonight, but come close to it, and Mir uh, Hashem in the next class actually finish. Um, so Klal Yisrael is already in Eretz Yisrael. Um, they miraculously crossed the, um, the Yardin. And they miraculously conquered the first city, which was Yerichai. And all of these stories are really behind us. And they already um, are well into the conquest of Eretz Yisrael. The entire, um, uh, the entire period of time of the conquest and division of the land altogether is going to take 14 years. Um, that's not to say that at the end of the 14 years, the entire Eretz Yisrael will have been fully conquered and settled by Klal Yisrael. But the basic, what's called in Chazal and Halacha, the kibush, kibush is the Hebrew word for conquest, and chiluk, which is the um, the division of the land and settling of the land, was 14 years. So we today are seven years into it, basically. Um, the basic kibush was done, the basic battles, we had the big battle, which was in Givain. We talked about that in the last year, about the great nisim of Shemesh Begivain Doim. When the sun was stopped in giving, and then we talked about the stones that fell from heaven. All of that is behind us. And the Pasuk begins in chapter 13 that Yeshua is getting older. He's getting old. Um, and Hashem tells him, Hashem says that, listen, there's a lot more of the land that has to be conquered and settled by the Jewish people, and you're not going to do all of it. And But what I want you to do, Hashem tells Yeshua now, is that you should divide whatever is remaining in the land amongst the Shvatim. So you divide the land, whether you already conquered it or not, you divide the entire land to Shvatim, and then each individual Shevet is going to go ahead and conquer their own land, their own part of the land, that is. So whereas until now, it's sort of Klal Yisrael is acting as one unit, with Yeshua as their leader, both spiritual and also their general. And that's something unique that people don't realize. Yeshua was both the Shafit as well as the general, as well as the Sadiq. Um, but whereas till now it was really one unit working and, and conquering and so on, from now on it's, it's really going to be much more split up. Yeshua is going to divide the entire land now, give each Shavit their Chalik, and then it's going to become the responsibility of each Shavit to go and conquer their part of the land individually. And um, interesting, interestingly, this had a tremendous important halachic significance. The fact that Yeshua now is doing this division and then having each Shevet go and conquer their own part. And the reason for that is, we know conquering Eretz Yisrael is not just like conquering another land. It's not just about a place to live. But by when they would conquer and settle the place of the land, that place became Kaddish, it became holy, with the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. Um, and I want to explain. Even though Hashem had already... You know, Israel has always been holy from the beginning, from Avram Avinu. From Avram Avinu, it's already the holy land. But it's not the holiness as far as halachic holiness. Like for the chiv of mitzvahs. We have many mitzvahs that their obligation is only in Eretz Yisrael. When you talk about truma, you talk about meiser, you talk about shemitah, there are so many mitzvahs that in halach are called mitzvahs hatluyos ba'aretz. The mitzvahs that are dependent on the land. Now, those, those mitzvahs only became... Um, obligatory, when Klal Yisrael as a whole conquered Eretz Yisrael. And there's a whole area of halacha which I'm not going to go into, because really we conquered Eretz Yisrael twice. 
we conquered it coming up from Eretz Yisrael with Yehoshua, and then we were in Gul- we were exiled by the um, by the Babylonians, and then we came up again with Ezra, and that's called Kibush Rishon and Kibusheni, the first conquest, the second conquest. Not always the same places were conquered over and over, and that creates all different types of halachic questions about certain areas that may have been conquered the first time around, not the second time around, or vice versa. Which again is I'm not going to go into that. That's a halachic discussion. The point I want to make here, though is that in order for any part of Eretz Yisrael to become Kadosh, in a way that the mitzvahs become obligatory, is only if it's conquered through Klal Yisrael as a whole, not through one individual shevet or one individual general that goes and conquers it. And that's why it was important for Yeshua, even though that the actual conquest is going to happen over the next many years, even after his passing, he had to be the one as one unified leader of Klal Yisrael, that should say, okay, this part belongs to this Shevet, and this part belongs to that Shevet. So when he was dividing Eretz Yisrael and giving it to the Shvatim, at that point he had the power of the entire Klal Yisrael behind him, and the leader of Klal Yisrael, and therefore all of those places were going to become Kadesh, were going to become fully holy, and fully therefore um, obligated in all of the mitzvahs of Eretz Yisrael. So again, I feel I'm not sure I was 100% clear. I just want to summarize that again. If Yeshua would sort of leave it to each tribe to do it on their own, then those places wouldn't become Eretz Yisrael proper. They'd be a place where Jews lived. But it wouldn't have the Kedusha halachically, the halachic status of Eretz Yisrael. And that's why Yeshua, before he passed away, had to go ahead and do this act of he's going to take care of the entire division and he's going to say what part is whose and so on and so forth. By doing that, he was enabling that when those parts would be settled by that individual um, tribe, Shevet, it wouldn't be called Kibush Yachid, the conquest of the individual, but it's Kibush Rabim, it's the conquest of Klal Yisrael, and therefore has all the mitzvahs of Eretz Yisrael. Um, as an interesting point, many, many years later, there were certain battles that David HaMelech fought, hundreds of years later, and he conquered certain areas that did not attain the full Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, because he wasn't doing it at that point as the entire Klal Yisrael. So although David HaMelech was David HaMelech, and he was a Jewish king, and so on and so forth, when he was acting on his own, so to speak, so that those parts of the land that he conquered did not become part of Eretz Yisrael proper. And that's why Yehoshua had this, made this point, that he was dividing the entire Eretz Yisrael at the time, and setting it up to which tribe, which Shevet was going to go to which place. Okay, so that that's all discussed in Perikud Gimel, chapter 13. And then the Pasuk tells us that when Yeshua was dividing Eretz Yisrael, he was really only dividing it for nine and a half Shvatim. And the reason for that, as we know, is because two and a half Shvatim received their inheritance outside of Eretz Yisrael proper. And that goes back to the Chumash, um, the whole story of the tribe of God, Andrew Uvein, and half of Shevet Menashe. And that's a story that the Torah talks about in more than one place. Um, that all happened before Yeshua's times. When, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that Yeshua was alive, but before the time that Yeshua was the Nasi. So you had the Shevet God and, and, um, and Reuven and half of Menashe that they wanted their area in what's called the Ever Hayardin. Um, initially, when they told it to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu was quite upset with them. Um, he, was, he thought that they were afraid of crossing over into Eretz Yisrael. And that's when they promised that, to the contrary, they would lead everyone into battle. But nevertheless, they wanted their section outside of Eretz Yisrael proper in the area called Ever Hayardin, the lands that they had conquered from Sichon and from Og before they came into Eretz Yisrael. 
And that remained. That was a deal made with Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem um, signed on to that, so to speak. Um, so when Yeshua now is going to divide and have Eretz Yisrael settled, he's only dealing with nine and a half Shvatim, not twelve. Um, it's also important. Quick question: Does Levi get? Okay, great, excellent question. And that's the next thing I was going to say. And then when we talk, we're talking about the twelve Shvatim here. We're talking minus Shevet Levi. Shevet Levi, we know there's a special mitzvah that they should not inherit part of the land. Um, of course, they received places to live, but they did not inherit part of the land because they were not supposed to be involved in agriculture. They were supposed to be the teachers, the kohenim, the ones serving the Besamikdash, the Levim. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, and therefore not ones that should be involved in any way in agricultural cu- culture and settling the land. So therefore, when we're talking about the 12 Shvatim, we mean the initial 12 minus Levi, but double Yosef, right? Because Yosef's two sons, Ephraim and Menashe, each one becomes their own entity when it comes to receiving the portions in Eretz Yisrael. And therefore, that's how we have 12. Again, so Yaakov has 12 sons, minus Levi's 11, add one for Yosef, because Ephraim and Menashe, it's 12. Two and a half receive outside of Eretz Yisrael. And now it's the job of Yeshua to divide and settle the additional nine and a half Shvatim. Okay, um, one last note on that before we move on, and this is a fascinating note, and that's when Mashiach will come, may it be very, very speedily, so then Eretz Yisrael will be resplit, and then Levi will receive, and Yosef will be relegated back to one. And that's an, an interesting halachic fact, again, many people don't realize that, that there's going to be a reconfiguration of things when Mashiach comes, and again, I'm, I'm repeating, Levi is going to, yes, receive a section in the land of Eretz Yisrael. Yosef will receive only one. And here we have something very interesting, that the Navi says that Eretz Yisrael will be divided into 13 sections when Mashiach comes. And the question is, why 13? I'm sorry, I'm digressing here for a moment from our Yehoshua, but this is something that hopefully is very relevant very soon. So why 13? Think about it. If, if Levi is one and Yosef is one, so there's 12. So where's 13? says in Sfarim, the 13th will be for Mashiach himself. Which begs the obvious question, why does Mashiach need an entire section of Eretz Yisrael for himself? I mean, as, you know, as great as his palace might be, it's still not a section of the land. And one of the explanations given, and I find it fascinating, is that who's going to live in that 13th section? The Gerim. All of the converts. Because converts are not one of the 12 tribes. They're not one of the 12 tribes of Yaakov. And throughout the Golos, of course, you have many, many, many converts, um, which is, in fact, one of the reasons it's written for Golos is because of all of the holy converts that joined Klal Yisrael. And in this amazing turn of turn of things, the converts are the ones living closest to Mashiach when Mashiach comes. That's just an interesting point of the difference of how it will be when Mashiach will come. But let's return back to the way it was in the beginning in Yehoshua. So that was um, that was in very short, um, Perik Yud Gimel, chapter 13. Okay, chapter 14 begins the actual, okay, now that Yeshua has the mission, we're going to divide the land amongst the additional, uh, or the remaining nine and a half Shvatim. So, it starts that Yeshua is going to divide it, and he divides it together with the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol at the time is Elazar, Elazar the son of Aaron, right? Aaron, just like Moshe, passed away in the Midbar, so did Aaron. Aaron actually predeceased, passed away Moshe a few months, uh, Aaron passed, passed away half a year before Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu passed away in the seventh of Adar. And Aaron passed away in Rosh Chodesh of um, about just about half a year earlier. So the Kohen Gadol after Aaron was his son Elazar, and Elazar is the one with working with Yehoshua together, 
dividing and settling Eretz Yisrael. And Elazar, being the Ken Gadol, has the Urim Vitumim, he has the Holy Breastplate, which was a vehicle of prophecy. And together, Yeshua and Elazar are the ones who are going to run this Chalukah, this division of the land of Eretz Yisrael. And here we have an interesting thing going on now in chapter 14, and that is another famous name way back from the Chumash, and that's Kolev, Kolev ben Yefuna, right? We remember, Kolev was famously the other spy in addition to Yehoshua, who was a, a proper spy, right? Kolev, you know, when Moshe Rabbeinu sent the 12 spies, so there was 10 that came back and, and, gave, and, and went bad, so to speak, and two that were strong, that were faithful, Kolev and Yehoshua. So Kalev now makes an appearance, and Kalev comes to Yeshua, and he says, he says, my master, you remember when we were spies together, and it was you and I, you know, you, Yeshua, and me, Kalev, that we were faithful to the Dvar Hashem, the words of Hashem. Now, when we went, I took a special journey in Israel, and this is alluded to in the Pasuk and Chomish, though it doesn't say it clearly, and that is when Kalev came to Eretz Yisrael, he went to Hebron. And the reason he went to Hebron is to daven by the Ma'ara Samachpela, to daven by the Oves of Ram Yitzchak and Yaakov, uh, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah, and Adam and Chava. And Kalev went to daven. This is, I believe, the first place in the Torah where we have the concept of davening by Kivrei Tzadikim, by the Kivrei of Tzadikim. And Kalev went to Hebron in order to daven there for success in his mission and that he not be swayed by the plans, by the wicked plans of the Miraglim. Now, when Kalev came back with Yeshua, Kalev received a unique promise from Hashem, and that is that Hebron was ultimately going to be given to him. Um, because of his in the merit, of the fact that he went to Hebron, and he went to Davin by the Maras Machpela, Hebron was going to be gifted to Kalev. And therefore, Kalev, in this Perik, in Perik Yudala, chapter 14 of Yeshua, comes to Yeshua and he makes that request. And he says it was 45 years ago, because that's what it was. It was 45 years since the story of the Miraglim, which was in the beginning of the, of the journey in the desert. He says, at that time I was 40 years old. That's interesting. We don't know that from the Chumash. We know that from here. That um, Kalev says, I was 40 years old when I was sent as a spy to Israel together with you. 45 years ago, and today I'm 85 years old, says Kalev. And I've come to remind you and to request the portion of the land that Hashem said He would give me as a schus for the fact that I went there to Davin when we were sent as Miraglim. And in fact, Yikolev says, I am today as strong as I was when I was 40. He says, although I'm 85, and that's a pretty fine bracha, he says, I'm 85 years old, and I'm willing to go to battle. I'm willing to go to battle to conquer that part of Eretz Yisrael that Hashem promised to me. And perhaps he says, the fact that I remained with my initial strength at 85, that I was at 40, is a symbol that Hashem is relying on me and counting on me to battle that section of Eretz Yisrael that was promised for me. And that's exactly what happened, Yeshua says, of course. And interestingly, Kalev himself leads a, char, a battle in Hebron and is able to conquer the city of Hebron. Now, the city of Hebron, even though it's a small city, was a city that had giants in it, um, giant warriors, and those giants are even mentioned back in, in the Chumash, when it says that the Miraglim went to Israel. It says they saw the great giants, Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, who were, seems, great giants and warriors, 
who were still alive now, 45 years later. And Kalev was able to conquer all of those that were in Hebron, and Hebron became the, um, the property of Kalev and for Kalev's family. So Kalev was from the so Shevet... What, what tribe was uh, Kalev? So Kalev was from Shevet Yehuda, was from the tribe Yehuda, but nevertheless, this was not part of the general um, portion of the tribe of Yehuda. This was given specifically for Kalev and his family within the tribe of Yehuda. But it, it was in addition to the general portion that was ascribed to the tribe of Yehuda. Um, interestingly, there's a pasuk here, and I want to just focus on that pasuk for a moment. It says, the Pasik says, and I'm, I'm reading from the Pasik, Vishem Chevron Lifnim Kiryas Arba. That Chevron used to be called Kiryas Arba. Um, anyone who's visited Eretz Yisrael recently or in the last many years knows that there's Chevron, and next to that there's Kiryas Arba. But that's just the way it's set up today in the land of Israel. Initially, Chevron is Kiryas Arba. Again, again, today, if you go, you'll, there's Kiryas Arba, next door is Chevron. That's the way it's uh, set up today. But initially, in Tanakh, Tanakh says that the name of the place called Hebron was initially called Kiryas Arba. And then the Pasuk says, Ha'adam ha'gadol ba'anokim, the great giant who was there. V'ha'aretz shakata mimulchama, and then there was no more war. Then it was the world, the, the land was quiet from war. So what does the Pasuk mean when it talks about the great giant of Hebron? So on a pshat level, it means, as I said, that there were some great giants there. So we talked about there's the three, there's the Sheshai, Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, three great giants. And their father is the fourth giant. So then Kiryas Arba was the place of the four giants. That's on a pshat level. So he conquered Hebron where he had the four giants of Kiryas Arba. On a, in a Medrash level, the Medrashim say that Kiryas Arba is talking about the Ma'ara Samachpelah. And the Arba are the four couples that are buried there. Right? We have Adam and Chava, and we have um, Avram and Sarah, we have Yitzchak and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah. Of course, Rachel is elsewhere in Kever Rachel. But we have the four ca- ca- couples, that's Kiryas Arba. So who's the Adam HaGadol Ba'anakim? Who's the great giant? Says Medrashim, that's Avram Avinu. That Avram Avinu was in a, a level of greatness, the first, the first year, the first Neshama, and he's called the Adam HaGadol Ba'anakim amongst the Kiryas Arba. Amongst that... Um, the the Marasamachpelah of the four um, couples, but Avram is called the God of Anakim, the giant, the first of our of our Oves, the first of our Oves, and then it says that the world that the land then became quiet from battle, which simply means that Yeshua had finished the basic battles and now it was a quiet time. But the Medrash says something else very fascinating. It says that it's it's because Avram is the God of Anakim, Avram is the great giant. So because of the schus of Avram. The 40 years before Yehoshua, there was no battle in the land, which means the following. The nations of Israel, the Canaanite nations, showed great respect to Avram Avinu. When did they show that great respect? When Avram came from Ma'aras HaMachpelah. We have in the beginning of Parshas Chai Yisara. When Sarah passes away, Avram comes, he wants to buy the land, and we have Ephron and the people of the Chiti. They say, you're a master here, you're a, you're a great man, take the place. And they showed Avram great respect. Because of the great respect that they showed Avram, they saved themselves, they, they gained themselves 40 years before Kalal Yisrael came into Eretz Yisrael in order to conquer and settle the land of Eretz Yisrael. So the Medrash says that's what this passage means. That because of the Godel Ba'anokim, because of the great giant Avram Avinu, 
And because of the honor that they accorded him, that's why they received 40 years in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, before Klal Yisrael came to settle the land. Which is a, an, an, an interesting concept, because we know that, that the reason we spent 40 years in the desert, because we sinned. We sinned with Miraglim. But what this matter is telling us is that every part of a story is there for a reason. So we couldn't come into the land because we sinned. On the other hand, they were deserving of the land because of the honor that they accorded of Ramavina. And that's how the Medrash explains this Pasuk. Um, but okay, but the end, at the end of this Perik, Perik Yudalit, we have um, that Yeshua gives Kalev Hebron and Kalev is going to conquer Hebron. And that's how Perik Yudalit finishes. Okay? Which brings us to Perik Tesvav, chapter 15. In chapter 15, the Navi goes through in very great detail um, how Yehuda or all the cities that Yehuda conquered in Eretz Yisrael. Um, it's interesting, it's amazing when you read through the next few chapters of Navi, how many little towns there were in the land of Israel. Well, I guess even today, if you look at the land of Israel and you do go, go by the road signs, there's a lot of different towns. And the Navi names them one by one, where Yehuda lived and where, is very, very detailed. The next number of Prakim, um, there's not much to learn, it's geography, it's telling you where A, B, C, D, all the city and that city and that city, and where the various Shvatim lived, but it goes through in great detail. So, in this Perik, Perik Tezvav, he goes through all the different parts of Shevet Yehuda, the different parts of Israel that were given to Shevet Yehuda in detail. Then it talks about how Kalev actually went and also received his part, which was, as we said, in Hebron. And then, there's another interesting thing, and it says that right next to Hebron, there was another city that was called Dvir. Dvir, Dalad Vez Yud Resh. And it says, Dvir used to be called Kiryas Sefer. I'm pretty sure there's a place in Eretz today called Kiryas Sefer. I don't know if it's the same place in geography where that Kiryas Sefer was. But it says that there was this place, Devir, called Kiryas Sefer, and Kalev was not able to conquer it. With all his might, he recognized that someone else had to do it. And therefore, Kalev said, he recognized there was some type of a divine mission over here, and he said, whoever is able to conquer the city of Devir will be able, will marry my daughter. And Kalev had a daughter named Achsa, according to Midrashim, was a big tzaddikist. And Kalev says, whoever will marry, whoever will conquer Devir, will marry my daughter Achsa, become my son-in-law. And we're told of an interesting, another great tzaddik, who comes comes in, and he's the one who conquers Devir, or the one place called Kiryas Sefer, and he's called Asniel ben Kenaz a name that we'll hear about later in Navi as well. Asniel ben Kenaz is a step-brother to Kalev. They're, they're, they, have the, they, they, they have the same mother. Their mother was married to two men at different times, obviously, and because Kalev's father's name is Yifune, Kalev ben Yifune, and Asniel's father's name is Kenaz. But these two men, Yifune and Kenaz, first Yifune was married to the mother, and then Kenaz, so, Kalev and Asniel are brothers-in-law. Uh, are, I'm sorry, are, are step-brothers. Step-brothers. And then, um, Asniel marries Kalev's daughter after Asniel is able to conquer that city called Devir or Kirya Sefer. That's all in the Pshat of the Psukim. Chazal tell us in the Gemara something very fascinating about this Asniel ben Kenaz. Very interesting story. It says that when Moshe Rabbeinu passed away, Right before he passed away, he called in Yeshua. And he says, My Talmud, my dear disciple, 
ask of me any questions in Torah. Is there anything that I didn't tell you? After all, you are the successor of Torah. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu taught the Torah to call Yisrael and Yeshua was the next in the in the oral tradition. So Moshe Rabbeinu, before he passes away, calls in Yeshua and asks him, please ask me any questions you might have in any area of Torah. And Yeshua says, my master, 40 years I never left your side. I, I've learned everything. You, you've told me everything. I've not, there's nothing I have to ask you. That's what Yeshua says. And then the Gemara says, the Madrashim say, that when Moshe Rabbeinu died, there was such an avelus, such a state of mourning for 30 days, that there wasn't the regular learning systems going on. And the Gemara says that there was over a thousand halachis that became forgotten during the avelus, during the um, the mourning period after Moshe Rabbeinu, the 30-day mourning period. A thousand areas of halacha that became unclear exactly what the halacha is. So the Shaila, so the people asked Yeshua, they said, Yeshua, you're a prophet. Ask Hashem, you know, you're a prophet. Find out what the halacha is. And Yeshua answered with a quote that's a famous quote, Torah loy bashamayimhi. Torah cannot be gained through prophecy. Now, once Moshe Rabbeinu gave us, that brought the Torah to us from heaven, the Torah we have to learn and understand it from within the Torah that was given to us. We don't have the ability to uh, get a Ruach HaKodesh to find out what the halacha is. And there was a great, um, there was a great sadness that there was a number of halachas, many halachas that were forgotten. Until arose the great tzaddik and great scholar Asniel ben Knaz. This Asniel ben Knaz that now is going to become Kalev's uh, son-in-law, he was able to find from within the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu taught us, he was able to um, extrapolate and figure out all of those halachas that were lost. And that's why the city that he would conquer is called Kirya Sefer. So Chazal say because of his tremendous knowledge of Torah, that Kirya Sefer is alluding to not just a physical city, but it was alluding to his ability, his prowess, so to speak, in learning Torah and halacha, that he was able to, through his brilliance and through his depth of understanding, um, figure out all of those halachas that were somehow lost in that period of the morning after Mesh Rabbeinu, Asniel was able to return them to Klal Yisrael. Anyways, so but back here, um, Asniel is the one who's uh, going to help Kalev and he's going to conquer that additional city and then he becomes his son-in-law. And the Pasa goes on to to finish off all of the various cities that were conquered by the tribe of Yehuda, Shevet Yehuda, and they were settled by the Shevet Yehuda. And then until Can the... Silverberg? Yes. Just, just a quick question. Sure. Did the Shvatim help each other conquer their different parts or did, they, did everyone have to do it on their own? So in most cases, they did it on their own because they didn't need help. They were, each one was an independently very powerful army. In certain cases, the Tanakh says that one Shevet went out with another to battle to help them. So it was it doesn't seem like there was some type of a command one way or another. It was just, base, usually, typically, they did it themselves. And if there was a need for help, they called on each other to help them. Okay, good. Okay. They were able to do it on their own. Yeah, yeah, enough. yeah. And obviously, obviously, this all with Hashem's brachas, obviously. But uh, yeah. yeah, they had the they had the individual strength, right? Um, okay, the pasuk, the chapter fifteen finishes with an interesting pasuk. It says, says so. So Yehuda conquered A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the different names, which I don't remember. And then it says, until one last place, which is the Yevusi that lived in Yerushalayim, them they couldn't conquer. 
And that's how the chapter finishes. Like with this odd statement that there's like everything worked out, but there was one thing at the end that they couldn't conquer. So of course all the Mepharshim, the commentators are like, like, why was that place different than anywhere else? If they're able to conquer everything and if Hashem is with them, why was it that they could not conquer that place? And and all of the Mepharshim, Rashi and all of the Mepharshim bring, that the Gemara says, that it wasn't a question of not being able to physically. It was a question of not being able to because Hashem didn't allow them to. And the reason for that is because those people who lived there were descendants of Avimelech, who Avram Avinu made a covenant with, that I will be there for your grandchildren just like you will be there for mine. And Hashem, a, a promise given by Avram Avinu, goes a long way. So therefore, even though now we're more than 400 years later, after Avram Avinu, and the Jewish people are in Eretz Yisrael, and they're conquering the land as Hashem wants them to. Nevertheless, because Avram Avinu made that promise to Avimelech, so those descendants of his were safe. And that's what the Pasuk means when it says at the end of Perik Tesvav, chapter 15, that aside from that one um, family of Yivus that lived in Yerushalayim, they could not be conquered, meaning again, not physically because of, of any physical might, but because they didn't have the right to because we were honoring the promise that Avram Avinu gave to Avimelech. And this is something... Um, we'll see throughout the Nevi'im the concept of honoring a promise. We had it last last year about the Givainim, that they tricked us into making a promise, but Yeshua said, if we promise, that's it. So here we have a promise that's hundreds of years old, and it's going to hold strong even till, the, till, the, till that time. And it's not until hundreds of years later, in the time of David HaMelech, that he's going to conquer that family because of something that happens then, where that initial covenant of Avram is not any more binding, as we'll see when we get there. But in this, at this point, Yeshua, I'm sorry. Where was this? Because we just learned about Avra, about Avimelech and Gerar, and it's like in the Philistine area. And you just said it was like in Jerusalem area. Right. So there was different. There's different Avimelechs throughout Chumash. Oh, different the Avimelech and Gerar is with Yitzchak, and this is with Avram, and it's different. Avimelech was like Paro, the name of kings in that time. Um, oh, so the, the treaty that Avimelech made with Avram was in a different place than the one that gets I'm, I'm, Although I don't want to say that's certain without looking into it, I'm pretty certain that it is. Okay, that cleared that up. Yeah. Um, in fact, and here's an interesting thing, just connecting it to Parsha Sashavua, this week's Parsha starts with Vayetze Yaakov Mebe'er Shava. So the Medrash says that Yaakov wanted to leave this place of those Shavuos, of those oaths, that were being taken between Avram and Avimelech, and then Yitzchak and Avimelech. And Yaakov says, I don't want to make any additional oaths and then hurt my children ultimately hundreds of years down the line. So the Medrash says that in the beginning of this week's Parsha, that Yaakov says, Vayetze, I'm leaving this area because I don't want to take additional oaths more than my father and grandfather, and therefore, you know, push back even more so what the promise of ultimately Eretz Yisrael becoming the land of, of Klal Yisrael. But that is alluded to in the end of Perik Tesvav, chapter 15, over here in the Navi. Okay, Perik Tes Zion, chapter 16. Um, I'm going to spend about 10 seconds on it. All it is is names of places. And primarily it talks about the gvulos, the um, uh, the boundaries of Ephraim, the Shevet Ephraim. Ephraim, of course, is from Yosef. And the entire Perik Tes Zion, 16, which is not a long Perik, talks about the settlement of the Shevet Ephraim. So, if we're keeping track, we've learned so far about the two and a half Shvatim that received already, right? You had Reuven and Gad and half of Manasha. We learned about Yehuda, and now we learned about Ephraim. And that brings us to Perik Yud Zayin. Yud Zayin, which is 17, deals with the other half of Manasha, 
Right? Menashe has one half outside of Israel, together with God and Reuven. And Yudzayin talks about the second half of Menashe. And of course, that comes right after Ephraim, because Menashe and Ephraim are both from Yosef. So Yudzayin deals with the second part of Menashe and the areas that they were going to receive. And when you talk about the second half of Menashe, you talk about the five famous, famous women of Menashe, which were the daughters of Tzlavchad, which of course made their appearance in Chumash. And they were the ones who um, went to Moshe Rabbeinu. They went all the way up to the top and they asked for a, a portion of the land because their father had died. Their father was Slavchad. And Hashem grants their request. And in this chapter is where they come forth to claim their part of the land. Everything wait, that happens... Can you in, just, uh, wait, can you just make the connection between who is the Slavchad's father and who is Menashe? What's the connection? Slavchad is from the tribe of Menashe. Um, I don't. Yes, I don't know if I remember all the way back. Slavchad ben Chifer ben okay, Mach- so Machir. Menashe was the original head, and then it goes down a little bit. Correct, to correct. Okay, Menashe, Menashe is Yosef's son. Right? Yosef had two sons, Ephraim and Menashe, okay. and they become like part of the twelve Shvatim. And then they have tribes, and in within the Shevet of Menashe, you had this Sadik named Slavchad. Um, Slavchad's father was Chifer. Um, I think he was a grandson of Menashe. And then Slavchad dies. And he has five daughters. And those five daughters are not going to be getting a part in the land of Israel because their father is, is gone. And the, fa- the land was divided amongst the men. And they're the ones who come to Moshe Rabbeinu and they say, it's not fear. Our father died in the desert. Why should our family be lost? Why shouldn't we have a chalik in the land of Eretz Yisrael? Moshe Rabbeinu himself doesn't know. He says, let me go and ask Hashem. Hashem says, famously, Cain beno Slavchad Dovros. The words, the, the daughters of Slavchad are talking correctly. Nason titen lahem. They should receive the portion of their family. And it's in this um, uh, chapter, in chapter 17 of Yehoshua, where the daughters of Slavchot come forth to Yehoshua, and they say, listen, this was promised to us, and Yehoshua says, of course, and they are given their portion in the land of Eretz Yisrael, but there's a very notable mes- mention of them here again as they come forward. So just like two chapters ago, uh, Kalev came forward to say, you know, I have a part coming to me, here again they come forth and say that they have their part waiting for them, and Yehoshua agrees and gives them their part of the land as well. In the end of chapter 17, there's a, a little, a very interesting interchange, and that is that the tribe of Yosef, which is which is from Ephraim and Manasseh, these that we've been dealing with in the last two chapters, come to Yeshua and they say, you know, we didn't get enough space. <laughs> Some things don't really change. And they say, um, they say you know, we're, we're a huge shevet. And, and, and the truth is, the, the shevet Yosef really grew. Very, very, and, and there's, you know, many thousands, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there's thousands and thousands, they said the part, the area that we received is not really adequate. And Yeshua tells them, interestingly, he says that around your areas there's big forests, and therefore go and cut down the forest, and you have more place. <laughs> and there's a, a back and forth about that, and then Yeshua says there's an area right near you could conquer. That's what we have in the Pshat of the Navi. Chazal, who always tell us the deeper story of what's going on as well, say something very fascinating that was really going on. They say that the tribe of Yosef is coming and saying, we're so many, we're, we're so many people, we need more space. Yeshua said, you're so many. If you're so many, he says, go hide in the forest. No, he wasn't just saying cut down the forest. Hide in the forest because of an ayin hara. We have a concept, if you're talking about how many you are and all the multitudes, you should be concerned about the concept of ayin hara. And that's why he mentioned the forest. He said, if you're many, lay low. Don't, don't you know, announce it. Don't walk around announcing how, how much you've been blessed. They have so many children and grandchildren. Hide. You know, lay low. And they responded, says the Gemara. They said, no, we don't need to. 
because we come from Yosef. And Yosef had a special bracha all the way back from Yaakov Avinu to be protected from Ayin Hora. We know that Yosef was exceedingly very, very handsome, very beautiful in Mitzrayim, and he was the viceroy. And Yaakov, on his deathbed in Parshas Vayechi, benches Yosef. He says, Ben Poras Yosef, Ben Poras Alei Ayin. So Alei Ayin, says the Gemara means that Yaakov was benching him that he should be safe from any evil eye, from any Ayin horror. So that was going on between um, Yeshua and Menasha, the Menasha and Ephraim's descendants. Um, Yeshua says, go hide in the forest. There's so many of you, and they're answering that we ourselves, we'd have that brach of Ayin Hara, and therefore we don't have to be concerned about that. And that is how Perik Yud Zayin finishes. So by the end of Perik Yud Zayin, we've taken care of how many Shvatim. If we think about it, we have the two and a half outside, we have Yehuda, we have um, the Ephraim, and the other half of Menashe. So we've taken care of five out of the twelve Shvatim, Again, we're counting. Yosef. I'm sorry? And Yosef. Ephraim and Menashe are Yosef. Oh, okay. Right? Ephraim and Menashe are the two that represent Yosef. And we've also taken care of Yehuda. And we've also taken care of Reuven and God. And that brings us to chapter 18. Maybe we'll let's just do one more quickly over here. And in Perik Yudchas, something very, very important happens. It's at this point that the Mishkan is going to be erected in Shiloh. Um, let's remember. The Mishkan was created by Moshe Rabbeinu um, under the uh, the actual builders were Betzalel and Ahaliyev, but it was created through Moshe Rabbeinu right after um, the whole story of the Golden Calf. I mean, basically it was it was put up on Rosh Chodesh Nisan one year after the Exodus, after leaving Mitzrayim. The Mishkan traveled with the Jewish people for 40 years in the desert, but the Mishkan was a very transient type of structure, right? It was made of planks, of wooden planks, and it had no roof. It was tapestries. It traveled with them for 40 years from place to place. And when they came into Eretz Yisrael, initially, they set up the Mishkan in the first place where they stepped in Israel, and that was the city of Gilgal. Um, Gilgal is where the Mishkan stood for the entire 14 years of what we call Kibush V'chiluk, the conquest and division of the land. So it looked exactly like it looked in the desert. There was nothing changed. It was the same Mishkan. It wasn't rebuilt in any way. That same Mishkan stood for 14 years in Gilgal. Now, though, at the end of this 14 period, the Mishkan is going to undergo a major change. It's not anymore going to be a very transient structure. It's something, it's going to be built with stone. It's going to be a hall, a real house in Shiloh. And it's going to stand there for many, many years. The Mishkan is going to stand in Shiloh for the next 369 years. So it becomes, it's a permanent edifice, it's a building of stone, but although it's a building of stone, it still has no roof. The roof is the tapestries of the one that was with them in the Midbar in the desert. And this is, of course, all directed by Yehoshua, who says that it's time to, um, it's time to now erect a much more permanent type of a place, and that's where he puts it up in Shiloh, in Shiloh, and that's where the Mishkan, again, is going to stand for, for many, many years. Now, later, after 369 years, then we're going to build the base on Mikdash in Yerushalayim, and that's going to be built by Shlomo HaMelech. Then it's going to get a roof as well. Then it's going to be a full structure. So if you think about it, the Mishkan really was, uh, it, was a, it was a process of evolution. right? In the Midbar and the first 14 years in Israel, it was just planks and tapestries. In Shiloh, it was already a stone edifice, 
but with a tapestry roof. And then the Beis HaMikdash is when it becomes a full building, stone from top to bottom. And there's a lot of explanations in Hasidus for that, of all those different steps, which I'm not going to get into now, perhaps at another point, of why it's something that kept on becoming more of a permanent structure as it went from stage to stage. But for whatever reason, be that as it may for now, it's in this parak, in Perak Yudchas, chapter 18 of Yeshua, that the Pasuk says that at this point, Yeshua directed them to build the Mishkan in Shiloh, and the initial planks were hidden. The, crush, the crushing, the planks of the Mishkan that they used for the 40 years of the desert and the 14 years in Gilgal, they they kept them, they put them in like a Geniza, some type of a, a hiding place, and ultimately they're going to be hidden uh, under the Temple Mount much later. But that's the building of the Mishkan, which happens in Shile, which happens at this point. Um, after which, Yeshua says, now we have to see to it to take care of the final seven Shvatim. Because we've taken care of five already, two and a half outside of Israel, two and a half inside of Israel. Now we built the Mishkan Shiloh, and Yeshua says, now we have to quickly, we have to deal with the final settling, the final seven Shvatim in the land of Eretz Yisrael. And the period goes on to enumerate um, the tribe of Binyamin. It goes through the cities of Binyamin. So that's number six. In our order, um, the Perik Yudchas deals with, uh, finishes up with the uh, boundaries and the cities that were going to be the tribe of Binyamin. And that is followed by Perik Yudtes, chapter 19, which goes through all of the rest, the additional six Shvatim, all of their boundaries and all of their cities. So, Shimon, Zevulun, Yisachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dun. And all of that, Perikutas, is a lengthy chapter and goes through all of those six Shvatim and all of their boundaries and all of their cities. And with that, at the end of chapter 19, is where we finish the basic settling of the land of Eretz Yisrael by all of the 12 Shvatim. Again, of course, again, minus Levi and, and double Yosef, but the 12 sections of the land. There's definitely still sections where there's still um, other people living, but they have ba- basically divided and settled that all the 12 Shvatim have their place in the land. And that is finished at the end of chapter 19, which is just a few chapters away from the end of the Sefer, but we will um, uh, try to cover that in our next class, where we'll probably finish Yeshua and also begin Shoftim, Emir Tzah Hashem. Rabbi Silverberg, I have a question. Sure. Just wanted to know, like, I always thought when Mashiach 